and I hope you are well. In today's conversation, I'm going to be speaking with Theo Dawson. This is a conversation recorded quite some time ago, so apologies to Theo that it took us so long to get it out. And well, Theo is a developmental theorist, and she's the founder of Lectica, and Lectica or a non-profit who create and deliver learning tools that accelerate people's uh, development, stage of development. And they also have online assessment tools which assess uh, different aspects of people's developmental maturity. And their work is based a lot on Kurt Fisher's dynamic skill theory, which I think is just something that's really beautiful. If you don't know about that, check it out. Um and so in this conversation today, we'll talk about what's the work they do at Lectica, how can we move through learning cycles, which then accelerate our development, and how does Theo see development differently than uh, perhaps, you know, some of the other major players in the field like Keegan, um, you know, what are some of the critiques you might have of the way people in general tend to hold development? So that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Theo Dawson. Let's dive in. I thought I could just begin by asking you about Lectica and then to ask you, like, how do you see learning, um, skill development? And um, because I, I really enjoyed your article about vertical development, you know, where you were, it's quite a bit of an older one, but you were saying like uh, this, this notion of vertical development, which makes it sexy and, um, you know, actually... Uh, Piaget was talking about the the both um, horizontal and vertical and how they were you know like it was a kind of dance between them so you know I'd love to ask you basically about you know what how do you see learning and development and then from there we can touch into um, you know the B-call thing and the Goldilocks zone and um, perhaps talk about some of the you know the um, not being a ladder but being a web and and some of the kind of um stages i don't know if that's an appropriate <laughs> word to use but you know like there there are kind of um kind of tier developments on there i think so yes there are so um it's you know it's really difficult in a context like this to to talk about developmental levels in a way that's uh coherent that provides something of value and doesn't just completely confuse people right and and, and i I point that out early in most of the discussions that I have with people because I think that there's a tendency because we've been exposed to the notion of developmental stage to just map what you hear about stages onto what you already have heard or know of, have understood. Right. Um, but also because the, the entire um, notion of hierarchical complexity in learning also confuses experts in the field. It's challenging and complex and difficult and nuanced and, <laughs> right. and you know, the, this misunderstanding that people often have, for example, that, that there's this big difference between learning and development is one example of a case in which it's not just the public at large is confused, but it's a case in which many scholars actually misinterpreted Piaget's message right. in that way as well. So, it, you know, we get, we come by it honestly, yeah. uh, but but in Piaget's original formulation, he wasn't trying to say that learning and development are different things. He was trying to say, he was trying to ask the question of about 
what he called accommodation and assimil assimilation. Assimilation being when we can take in knowledge and put it si next to the knowledge we already have. Right. right? So yeah. I'm collecting knowledge and I can put this, this new knowledge next to the information I already have. And what that means is that it's something that I can understand well enough right now on the face of it with the current level of understanding that I have of the world. And so I can just add it to my collection of knowledge that I have at this level of complexity. Now I'm talking about not just in terms of big stage changes, but also just in terms of like those, you know, learning in the moment or smaller changes. Because Piaget did not, was not claiming that, you know, accommodation happens when you change stage and assimilation happens all the rest of the time. He was not saying that at all. He was saying that there's always this dance, as you said earlier, between accommodation and assimilation that's going on in every micro moment of learning so that you can have instances, very tiny instances in which you have to modify something you already know based upon something new that comes in. Well, like in this moment, for example, you know, that as you, as you, I, I think I'm someone who's kind of fallen perhaps somewhat into the, the idea of like vertical development being the sexy thing and that um, skill development, you know, is, well, um, that's not going to help us become more complex or transform and thrive in the world, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. so we have to choose between the two. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, as I'm, I'm basically now, as I'm hearing you explain about this assimilative knowledge, this kind of horizontal skill development, um, you know, it's, it's how I'm, I'm comparing that to my own kind of understanding and map. And it's kind of, I can feel it in the moment, peaking a kind of curiosity and, um, and I kind of wonder, you know, of like, oh, uh, this is a beautiful territory for me to go into because it could, it could be um, transformative, you know, and I don't, that word is a, um, you know, a kind of comes with a lot of baggage. What do we yeah. mean by that? But let's just um, use it to, in this contest text, unless we say otherwise, let's use that word to mean it's changing my mind. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so like, I, I really like where we're at in this conversation. Let's continue because, uh, you know, I think a lot of the people who listen to our podcast you know, we've introduced people like Robert Keegan and Jennifer Garvey Berger and Suzanne Cook Reuter. And I've really wanted to introduce people to your work and, you know, um, the idea of dynamic skill theory, which I think has inspired your work a lot because it, because I think it brings in um, a very um, important perspective, you know, and this idea of, of skill development. So, um, before you, before you yeah. ask the next question, I yeah. just want to point out that, that, that feeling that you just were having of, you know, kind of getting excited about right. the potential for a new way of thinking. Um, that's what we call the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> right. And Think what happened that. Yeah. to you just there was that um, you just got a hit of opioid. <laughs> right. <laughs> because a spark went off in your brain, right? And then that instantly caused you to do a dopamine release, which is making you want to know more. <laughs> right and that's what, what we're talking about when we talk about optimal learning optimal learning happens when we can get into that space as much as possible right yeah i would i want to invite you to expand on that idea you know um 
what do you say more about what you see as optimal learning? How do you, how, how well, I, didn't you, want to, yeah. I didn't want to derail us completely in the moment because I'm sure we're going to get to optimal learning. Yeah. Yeah. But let's, let's go back and, and finish talking about the vertical versus horizontal thing first, because I think it sets the stage really well for yeah. the discussion about optimal learning. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Great. I know. Cause, cause I have a tendency to derail people like crazy because as soon as you got excited, I started having one of those moments as well. <laughs> and this could become a feeding frenzy if we're not careful. <laughs> let's do it. So, um, yeah, let's right. come back so to that idea. So let's come back to this idea because I think this is a very, very important. I, I think that this is actually a profoundly important thing. I because I think the tendency to want to dichotomize, to put things into you know, to put things at opposite ends of the spectrum and choose one is just rampant in the adult development world. It's, it's rampant. It's, it's like there's this, this, this constant swinging of a pendulum back and forth between poles uh, that, that actually don't exist in reality. You know, there's, the poles aren't there, they're constructs. And what we've taken is a construct that is about a dynamic process, and we've turned it into these two polar caricatures of that process. And when we do things like that, we mess things up. And we're reproducing learning programs that are fundamentally flawed. Because Could you say how? Yeah, how do we mess things up? How are they flawed? Because we actually are preventing people from doing the kind of learning that they need to do to develop. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, you know when, we, when we switch the focus from learning in the moment in that dynamic process to I want to get higher, then you've immediately disrupted the learning pro the very learning process that's going to get you there. And you've, you've made it seem less sexy. You've devalorized a piece of it, a component that is absolutely critical to the process itself. So, you know, this, I mean, this is a you know, soapbox that I stand on a lot with people, especially in the adult community. So, so Piaget's formulation was one in which we have these two kinds of things happening all the time simultaneously at the micro and the macro scale and everything in between in which we can either be just bringing information in and adding it to what we already know in a way that's very it's undisruptive of our current way of thinking it doesn't change the way we think or we're bringing things in in a way that is a little disruptive and when that disruption gets to the point where you have to pay attention to it then that causes some reorganization of the way that we think, changes our con conceptualization, usually very slightly, you know, in a slight way, but that makes a difference in the way that things are networked in our brain so that it prepares our brain for that next little nugget that comes along that's gonna shake us up. And if you don't have that process happening continuously all the time in an optimal way, you derail the developmental process. You can't teach people to develop you can only teach them to learn optimally because right. the only route to development is learning optimally right yeah. so even you might say it could be counterproductive this uh, this striving for development you know striving to go higher and therefore devaluing the kind of micro learning that you were talking about uh, actually could be counterproductive you know yes and we've seen evidence of that actually we've had the opportunity to actually look at what happens to people who go on that journey. Mm. And what happens is they learn the vocabulary of this new thing 
but they don't actually deeply understand the concepts in that vocabulary. And so once they've acquired that vocabulary, they can't do anything really meaningful with it. Their thinking around it is fuzzy and murky and doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's the ideas haven't been connected in robust ways. And they, don't, they haven't built it on a foundation that can kind of hold it up and let them continue to grow. And, and typically what happens in situations like that, we've got good examples in K really profound evidence in K-12. And just um, say what that means, because a lot of our listeners come from around the world. So in the US, oh, um, yeah, yeah, you'll know. In the education of children and adolescents. Right. Yeah, we call that K-12 yeah. in the States. Um, we have profound evidence from K-12 and we have almost, you know, equally robust evidence from adulthood that when people learn in that way, that actual development will eventually stall and stop altogether. And, you know, it, and then we don't really know exactly what it takes to do the backfill. Like, it, like can you go back and fix it and, 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 yeah. um, and build robust platform that you can then learn from? Or at some point, does your brain just kind of go, there's nothing to connect to here. <laughs> yeah. When you, when you say learn in that way, I want to make sure I, I get what you mean by that. Um, when they learn in the way of when they're basically just memorizing stuff. Right, right. Okay. And not, yeah. when, you, when you memorize, oh, let, me, let me, I'll just step back. We, when we think about learning, there's several ways people construct that as a concept. So, one of the ways that's really common in our educational system here in the United States, and I think also in a lot of European countries, is that we really think of learning as, as putting facts in your brain. You know, it's stuff. It's those facts, procedures, processes, rules. You know, and you, learn, you learn things at the level of, can I spit that back out again, the way that it was given to me. Then there's understanding. So the next step would be, oh, ideally, you, when I learn something, I would at least get to the point where I could actually understand it. So where, where I can network it into my existing knowledge in a way that helps me you know, make sense of it and that I have an understanding of it that's relatively close to the intended understanding of it. But that's not enough by itself. <laughs> in order to really know something, you have to be able to put it to work. Yeah. And in fact, I would argue there's not much point in learning something unless you can't put it to work. And it's through the process of coming to understand something and then putting it to work that we actually build those connections in our brain that make something useful for a lifetime and make it stuff that we can actually build upon to build the next layer of concepts and ideas and skills that come along. Right. So building that in a robust way means building as many connections as you can and learning in a way that doesn't, it's not just academic. You're not just getting facts poured into your brain. You're not just understanding them on an academic level either, but you have an embodied sense of them because you put them to work in the world. When you do the embodiment piece, when you do the application piece, you recruit the emotional self, you recruit the kinesthetic self, the whole person is involved in that part of the process. And it's those memories, like learning to ride a bicycle or drive a car or play an instrument, that become lifelong knowledge and skills that we can depend upon to help us act effectively in the world. And importantly, continue learning forever.
Right. Yeah. yeah beautiful. Um, so many questions come up. Um, but as we're talking about putting it to work, you know, could you give us an example? You know, you gave an example of riding a bicycle. Um, but what, 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 um, maybe there's a, like, if we go underneath putting things to work, what's important that we do, um, when putting things to work that makes it, you know, um, learning and development as opposed to mere understanding, you know? Right. Uh, well, it, it can be such a wide range of things. And of course it varies from context to context. If you're in a purely academic context and your goal is to become an academician, then learning the material well enough to be able to write a really good coherent article is an application because in that context that matters and that's what matters you know is being able to do that but if you're uh um if you want to take that world that that knowledge out into the world and and apply it somehow like i had to do when i decided to leave the academy and try to make things happen in the world then what you have to do is actually engage in the practice of putting it to work and get the feedback from the environment that tells you when it's working and when it's not working. And you have to build a whole new repertoire of skills and, and, and ways of thinking that weren't there before. Um, so, so, you know, it can be on that scale, but it also could be on the scale of just re remember when you took algebra. Uh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. about. Yeah. Um, I think every student who takes algebra thinks to themselves, when am I ever going to use this? Like, yeah. when are they going to tell me what this actually means and when it's going to be useful to me? Because it's usually taught completely disconnected from the real world. An application type of learning of algebra would be, we don't teach algebra until you have a problem in which you need algebra. So, you know, the class is actually um, started its own business and now we've arrived at the point where we have to do some financial planning and we've got a lot of X's that we need to fill in <laughs> in order to make projections, right? Okay, now we're going to teach you algebra. <laughs> in that context, you're using algebra in a real world context. You've got lots of emotion around the success of your business and making good projections and doing good strategy. Um, you're working with other people, so you've got conflict about how's the best way to do it, and people are arguing their perspectives. All that stuff's being wired into your brain. And your understanding of that algebraic function that you learned in that moment is an embodied piece of knowledge that you're gonna take into your life forever. Right. So why do we teach it the other way? Because that's the way we've always done it and thought it worked best. And we didn't have computers to do the remembering for us and, you know, reasons so, like that. But there's no excuse anymore for that. Right. We could all I'm, learn that way. I'm curious to know more about, you know, if we come back to this idea of, of like common notions of vertical development as opposed to, you know, this dynamism between horizontal and vertical or um, accommodative, accomma, what, what's the word for vertical? Assimilation. Well, but he, he didn't think of them as vertical and horizontal. So right. those words were put on them by people who misunderstood him. Right. Right. So I'm just throwing those words away. Like, okay. let's get rid of them. Yeah. I don't, they don't make sense. And they're kind of messing the world up. So, <laughs> so, so what we're talking about is a dynamic process that's got these two things that are happening simultaneously all the time. 
you know, every time we engage the world, it's happening simultaneously all the time. So there's probably, you know, when we, if you look at things at a micro enough level, there's probably some kind of accommodation going on right now in every moment that, you know, that you're, of your existence. Um, because, because just as there's going to be information coming in that, yeah, okay, I get that, that fits. There's going to be other information that comes in and it's going to be uh, sort of, maybe get that, maybe it fits. Um, and at some point you're going to, your brain is going to say, okay, we need to address this over here. Right. <laughs> situation over here. So, so these are, these are kind of happening dynamically in concert with one another and you need one for the other. So if it wasn't for the bringing information in, you'd never need to be able to reorganize stuff. Right. Right. So they literally are codependent in a good way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> codependent in a really good way. Uh, so splitting them apart can be useful from an academic perspective if you're doing a research project, but splitting them apart when you're talking about human beings doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, it, what you do need to do, though, is make sure that you're learning in such a way that you're not missing opportunities when that happens. So right. when you have one of those moments where you go, hmm, well, maybe that fits, rather than letting that happen in your unconscious brain alone, you can engage in a process that allows you to, to actually have some control over what happens with, in that instance. Yeah. So now we're into the virtuous cycle of learning. Right. So let's and talk about, about that a bit. Yeah. How, how would you engage with that information in a way that it's not just unconscious? Yeah. So, you know, so the brain is wired to do this virtuous cycling by itself. So our, our, our native learning process is designed so that we're doing this by ourselves. So if you think of a child who's learning to walk, I, I um, had a chance to observe lots and lots of them because I was a midwife in my first career. And all the babies that I ever caught learned to walk. And they didn't need any help. They could basically do it by themselves, though it was fun when adults gave them a little bit of support and they would use the support of furniture and stuff like that. It was something they were completely driven to do and they acted like a bunch of addicted maniacs in the process of doing it. They'd fall down and hit their heads and scream and get right back up again and try again. Like, what the heck is that all about? Like, you know, what's going on in our brains that's making us willing to mm. suffer that much to learn? Um, and it turns out that it is called the dopamine opioid cycle. And we're really good at recruiting it with video games and advertising and media and our culture. And we're crap at cultivating it in education. So um, what happens in education, what, what I, I noticed two things. I noticed totally addicted babies, totally addicted. I mean, right. I, remember, I remember whistling to my granddaughter once and she spent the next week practicing constantly like a maniac and she learned to whistle in a week um you know they learn to tie their shoes the same way they learn to ride their bicycles the same way they get to school and by age eight they're not doing it anymore mm -hmm. and if i ask parents if i go to a, you know i'm up a large group of parents and i ask them to raise their hands if their one-year-old behaves like they're totally addicted to learning they all raise their hands and if I ask them if their eight-year-olds are addicted to learning, I get a few. 
because what we do in schooling yeah. is we disconnect people from that dopamine opioid cycle. Right. We turn learning into a chore and we get study skills instead of dopamine opioid. So, the, so this process, the dopamine op opioid cycle and the natural learning process is a cycle in which we're, we're setting a goal. So think of that baby as setting a goal. I'm gonna let go of this table <laughs> and I am going to stand here. <laughs> and they're not thinking that consciously, it's all happening underground because it's the way the brain's built. Mm -hmm. um, and they let go and, and they fall. And so immediately they've got feedback from their environment on the success or failure of what happened. They also know how they were doing it. And so the next time they get up, they're taking that, the experience from the last time and they're using what they learned from that tiny little experience to adjust what they do the next time. And they just keep doing it. Like, so it's a cycle that repeats over and over and over again. And that feedback is built in when you're dealing with the physical world. It's just built into the natural events that happen. So it's a great training ground. Um, and then finally, you know, the standing works and they immediately, with no hesitation, once they've got the standing, they're on to the next thing. They, they just don't linger. You know, they don't sit around and celebrate what they just accomplished. <laughs> they're immediately on to the next thing. It's the next goal that, you know, that next thing I saw mom do that I think is really cool that I want to do too. Right. Um, so, so there's a, that process in the brain is, is happening automatically. And the reason that it keeps going is because when you get the success, you get a release of opioid. So every time you get a success, you get a release of opioid. And that stimulates the release of dopamine. And dopamine, dopamine we call this driving hormone. So the dopamine gets released and makes them want the experience again. Now, what's really interesting about this process is that it doesn't work if you succeed every time. So there has to be a certain amount of pain to keep it going. Right. And that's so different like, for different people. Like computer games, yeah? Like everything, yes, exactly. You have to lose sometimes, otherwise you get bored. Right. Right? So there has to be just the right amount, right amount of loss for that particular person in that particular area. And I want to stress for that particular person here because I had three kids and they all learned to walk in completely different ways. One of them was fearless and didn't care how much she hurt herself. One of them was extremely cautious and never fell. They found their own, you know, they found their own Goldilocks zone and they both learned to walk, but they were different in that way. And they were reversed when it came to social learning. Right. So we have to really pay attention closely to ourselves in the context to see where it is for us in that context, whether we are high risk learners in one context or, you know, low risk learners in that context. So they get that so, so that you keep that cycle going by having success just often enough. And you can either think of it as having, a, you know, a dope, you know, an opioid release that often enough or as having enough pain. <laughs> I, and I like both. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think both of them have their charm. <laughs> I want to ask you about, you know, this, this beautiful idea and how we might begin to find our own Goldilocks zones and, you know, as adults identify, you know, um, the learning that, that would, you know, activate that whole process and help us thrive in our lives. But I want to, just before I do that, you, you mentioned context there. And I think that's, an important idea in your work that, you know, um, again, if we contrast some common notions of vertical development, it's like, there's this idea of, um, you know, like I, I develop a stage and then that's just uniform across my whole yeah. life. 
And I think in your work, it's different. Context is very essential. Maybe you could talk about that in yeah. relation to learning. Well, the context, you know, the context piece is actually, you know, comes out of many, many years of research and finding that there doesn't seem to be anything like <laughs> a single stage that people are at that, and, and also Kurt Fisher's work, which spanned, you know, 40 years of looking at development across different domains and observing that people seem to develop at different rates in different areas. And it seems to be strongly tied to how much experience they actually have in those areas in combination with how much kind of basic interest or talent they have at the outset and how much risk they're willing to take in different contexts. Uh, but also, you know, you're, you, you can perform differently based, based upon just how you're feeling on a particular day. So that's a piece of context as well. There's a lot of different kinds of things that can make up context. Um, I became a blithering idiot at Harvard when everybody in the room was rolling their eyes at me when I first started doing this work. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and now that's not the case. No. Uh, do I sound like a blithering idiot to you? No. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it, I actually, it was a big important lesson for me because I, I can actually handle people rolling their eyes at me now, but at the time I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> so, right. so, but, but you, how well you perform is so contextual that we don't even talk about what's inside people's heads. We just talk about performance now, um, which is not the same exactly as the way people think about behavior or performance. How's in it different? Contexts. Yeah. Because when we're talking about performance, we're really talking about um, the, the level of complexity and coherence with which they're approaching a particular issue and the particular at a particular time. Um, so even, even in the behavior and performance traditions, there's a kind of sense that the performance and behaviors are tied up with that person's identity in a strong way. That, yeah, that, that doesn't feel quite right to me based upon what we've learned over the years. Uh, so, but, but it but it's, turns out to be just empirically true that there's no real center of gravity. And that's, what, that's one of the things that it's actually called. Um, and, and, that, and that actually is an idea that came from Piaget originally, which was a, a theoretical postulate for him. Not that, it was an ideal, an ideal scenario for the purposes of model building. It was a kind of ideal situation that he set up so that he could experiment with it, like with the idea. And people took it as a claim about the brain which actually Piaget never claimed that it was a, about the brain. So that's another misunderstanding of a subtle, you know, a subtlety in, in the original research that, that has caused some difficulties and problems. So, and even the way that I'm characterizing it right now is a caricature, so. Right, <laughs> it's like, it kind of has me think about the value in thinking um, in terms of stages of development or complexity of development, as opposed to something like, um, you know, like uh, performance or skill, if it's so nuanced, like, like for example, um, you know, someone like Keegan's theory, like would that hold up for you in relationship to, you know, the, the work you've created, um, you know, and, and um, skill development and stuff? Yeah, well, 
I think, you know, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> the, the scale is really valuable. There's a lot of ways in which the electrical scale has enormous value and being able to place performances on the scale has enormous value. Right. But they aren't specifically related to that person's interests as a learner. Right. You know, so something can have enormous value in one context and be less valuable in another context. So knowing what level a person is performing at currently can be valuable from an individual perspective if we know what that means in that particular domain and we can help them identify what comes next for them, especially when people aren't already you know, lifetime V callers and they have lost their ability to recognize, you know, that interesting next thing for themselves. Um, it's useful to be able to give that information to them to kind of get that thing going again. So, so with our assessments, that's exactly what we do. We do a diagnostic of the electrical level. And then because we've studied how people actually learn the skills that are related to that assessment, we can say, okay, so this means that you're likely to benefit from doing this practice right now. Could, could we give an example for this? Because I, uh, I, lo I love what you're saying now. And this, you know, this um, the lectical assessment is your kind of developmental uh, assessment model. The, the lectic, the, yes, the lectical assessment system is our way of scoring performances and putting them on Fisher's skill scale. Right. Which we right. call the lectical scale now because... It's still his skill scale, but it's much more refined in terms of the number of gradations that we can identify because that's, that was my life mission for the first 10 years of this project was figuring out how to make those um, measurements refined enough so that they were useful as for educators. Right. So, so we succeeded in that. And so we, use, so we use the lectical scale in our research. We score performances and then the performances come in scored, and then we look at the kinds of meanings that people are making in each of the phases along the scale. And then we take that information and turn it into an understanding of the kind of meanings people make, the kind of skills they're likely to have, the kinds of you know, concepts they're likely to have in the repertoire at a particular level, and what that means that they might need at the, you know, to get to move, pull to the next level. So what are the challenges, the challenging practices that are gonna help pull them, um, keep pulling them along? Right and are, that are in there, what we call the Goldilocks zone, that zone in which it's interesting, it's interesting, and there's just the right amount of pain that's going to be involved in learning that, that new thing. Yeah. Um, so, so all of our assessments are designed to, to make it possible for us to say, okay, here's where it looks like you are right now based upon your performance, so here are some cool things that you could do to bring you along, and then we actually have them practice those things as part of virtuous cycles of learning so that they're building the skill of virtuous cycling. And we also have a course that we teach called VIP that where we just teach people virtuous cycling. That's all we right. do. So it's like retraining adults' brains so that they can have fun learning in the moment all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which, beautiful. Yeah. Which at least doubles people's, um, the rate of people's development. How do you do that? Like, what if someone, you know, what would you say to someone listening who would say, oh, but that sounds like you're, you know, doing the thing what we talked about not doing at the start, you know, like trying to develop in a way where, where well, you're... Anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so 
So I have written a couple of articles. You know, it's just that development isn't the goal. Learning in the moment, learning in the moment is the goal. Development's the outcome. <laughs> right. Gotcha. So it's right. like reversing right. the. That's right. And because people, and, and I want to go back actually to talking about the distinction between you know what babies are doing and what adults have to do in a minute. But yeah. Um, but okay, I just lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? Well, I, I, I asked you about, um, we, we talked about the switch, like learning, um, uh, development is the outcome, learning right. is the goal. Um, yes. Yeah. There was another piece in there that I was going to grab for. Let's, let's go back to the, to the difference between kids and adults. Yeah. Um, and because I think it'll partly answer the question that you followed up with, and then maybe the other idea will pop back into the Yeah, sure. Um, so the, so what's happening to babies is built into the brain. It's just built in and they're doing it from birth <laughs> and, and it's automatic and it's pretty much unconscious. There's the child is not intervening at right after the, the, um, the event happens and saying, what can I learn from this experience? <laughs> you know, they're just not doing that. They're just automatically learning from the experience. And that works great when you're in your early social and physical environments, because they're simple enough. You know, that that feedback that just naturally gets recorded in the brain does the job. But unfortunately, those, those presets that work really well when we're very young and the world is fairly simple for us, stop working as well as we become more complex thinkers and have, you know, have access to a more complex kind of reality and the issues that we're facing become more complex. And, you know, there, there, there are presets in the brain. And if you're, you're familiar with the work on um, cognitive biases, that's what I'm talking about here. And there's a whole plethora of them that aid learning in the early years and can actually derail you <laughs> completely yeah. as you get older if you don't learn how to reset them. Right. Could, I, I'm not so familiar. Could you just like name one just so we get a sense of, you know, if you, you might have heard of confirmation bias. Right. So yeah. we're like reconfirming exactly. what we know so, the tendency by the to way we look. What we know. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so we have to actually become active participants and say, you know, by, by the age of seven-ish or so, it's good to, to have people start becoming active participants and deciding how they're going to take things. Uh, and what that is the, the main thing that we add when we're teaching be calling in adulthood. So we're actually having adults consciously choose the goal, consciously decide how, what information they're going to need to be able to achieve the goal that they have to gather and what they already know. Yeah. Consciously choose an application, you know, choose to apply the information and then consciously um, reflect upon outcomes in a way that lets them decide how they're going to remember. So one example that I like to use is um, if the doorbell rings just as I drop a bottle of milk in my kitchen and it's completely coincidental, if I let my brain just remember that, I could start to have a startle reflex every single time the doorbell rings <laughs> because I associate it with dropping the bottle of milk and having to clean up the mess, right? right. Um, because our brain will automatically default to the fact that those two things happen simultaneously. Therefore, they're related to one another. Right. They're related to one another. If we are conscious V-callers, we're going to go, yeah, right. That's just stupid. <laughs> Immediately. 
you know, you're going to say, yeah, you want to remember it that way. But you know what? These two things are unrelated. And we can derail that particular connection getting made in our brain or reinforced in our brain. So, and you're doing it like at this tiny micro scale, right? But you're doing it all the time. So if you teach people to take that natural process and just become conscious of it and a conscious participant, then you can actually educate the brain. The brain's default settings start to get altered by the fact that dozens and dozens of times we've overridden them because we've been a conscious participant in our learning. And one of the reasons that we learn faster and better when we use this system is because we do that. We don't let crappy connections take hold <laughs> as much. You know, We don't let uh, the default settings in our brain rule us. We become the masters of how our unconscious brain gets designed right. when we recall. Could, could you give me an example? For example, um, you know, if someone did get tested on the lecture, scale and they've discovered that it would be beneficial for them to go into a well maybe we could always say it's beneficial to be learning but you know yeah. they, they, there's like a there's a, a kind of they should put their learning in a certain direction um, like how you know could you give us an example of like this this cycle you talked about the, yeah. the goal they set the information yeah. how they apply it and so on so before I say that I want to say that the best way to learn this is yeah. to actually be part of a program where people are being taught how to do this to and do, do it, it. Long, for a long enough period of time, practice it long enough to get it habituated. Right. So, so, but, so, but oftentimes people will just get one of our reports and they have no introduction to what we're doing whatsoever. So we'll accept that scenario as a scenario that we, we can actually right. yeah. address. Um, so, so what happens, let's use confirmation bias as an example, because confirmation bias is, you know, uh, dealing with cognitive biases, learning how to cope and deal with and retrain our brains <laughs> around cognitive biases is one of the plus seven skills in our model. So it's one of the things that we would target. So let's say that the person has, um, is performing at a level in which we know that it's becoming extremely important to derail confirmation bias in decision making then we might give them a V-call that suggests to them that they engage in a particular practice around confirmation bias. And it will be a V-call that, that has a goal. You know, you set a goal, gather information, application, and, and then reflection. But it'll be a special kind of V-call we call a micro V-call, where it's a V-call that you do in a, you practice every single time an instance comes up in which whatever you're going to be working on is present. So the first thing that we would do is we would give them a V-call that we would we call an awareness V-call, where it would just the whole process would be a little tiny process that you repeat again and again and again, where all you're doing is trying to learn to become aware of instances in which there's a potential for confirmation bias. Right. So because awareness is always the first step. You can't address a problem until you've identified the problem. So once people become aware, once they've completed this virtuous cycle over and over and over and over again until being aware of that's like driving or riding a bike. It's, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to try to recognize it. No brain energy is going into recognizing it because it's an unconscious response now. Then we teach them how to address it and step by step in these micro ways to address it. 
And each time we're going to be using that virtuous cycle process to get them to the point where they're driving so that we automate as much as possible in the skill before we add the next layer on. And it makes it a kind of much less painful learning process than just jumping in you know, with both feet and trying to do it all at the same time because your brain only has to deal with a few things at a time right. this way. And you can do it in, on the fly as you're engaged in a conversation with somebody, you can be doing it. And it, it stops, it's not disruptive because there's so little mental energy going into it. And so, so that an awareness recall would be really simple. It would be, okay, so um, there's the goal step. I am going to learn to recognize situations in which confirmation bias could happen, could be at play. Um, and uh, it, and we, might, we might actually even say just for me, like where my confirmation might, bias might be at play first. Or we might say whether either you might be suffering from it or somebody else might be suffering from it. And so how precise we are is going to depend upon, you know, how much mental energy we think it's going to take for that person to hold, you know, stuff in their brain. Um, and then we'll say, okay, so we want you to learn a little bit about what confirmation bias means before you go into this. So here's a little paragraph you can read, or here's a, a blog post or a little Wikipedia article or something that you can read to kind of get up to speed on what this means. And then we say, okay, apply. So the next step, the, the next step is to just go and, you know, for the next two weeks, identify every situation in which you think confirmation bias is at play, make a mental note of it. And at the end of the day, think about those contexts and what they were. Think, think about ways that you could kind of define and identify those contexts more easily. And you just do that until you automate that, that piece of the process. Right. And then the next step is, okay, so when you, when you see them, watch how other people are dealing with them. See if you notice any people where it looks like they're deliberately doing something that would prevent them from getting stuck there. Um, that might be one. Or we might say, no, um, now we want you in that situation when you notice the confirmation bias, think about an alternative where you could respond. Say that last part again, an alternative where you could respond. Yeah. Yeah. So think of an alternative. You don't have to enact it necessarily, but if it's safe, go ahead and enact it. You know, if it's a safe, small enough context, go ahead and enact, enact it. So there's a bunch of, I mean, there's so many benefits to this way of learning. One of the reasons that we have started to lean more toward micro V calling and away from V calling on a larger way in a larger way is that many workplaces really punish mistakes. And so micro V calling is a kind of answer to that because we actually have people practice in these micro low stakes contexts before they take the skill, you know, and master it before they take the skill to larger, bigger contexts. So they can make mistakes safely because they're not making mistakes that have stakes attached right. to them. Um, and so we find that this is something that even in a really difficult workplace where there's a lot of punishment going on for mistakes that are made, people are safe to learn. So the way of making learning safe almost anywhere, right? almost anywhere. There's some places where learning is really unsafe, like prisons, for example. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like slowing down to speed up. That's the feeling I get, you know, it's like. It's slowing down to speed up. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and, and, and that's exactly what it does. By the time that Children reach the age of 18 if they have been in educational programs that are very, very rich in be calling. 
they're up to five years ahead of kids in programs where there isn't. Wow. Wow. And once we take into account socioeconomic status, which explains a lot of the difference, it's still two and a half to three years different. Right. And they're on steeper learning trajectories um, that reflect the fact that their brains are much better organized and they have a better platform for future learning in place. So they're also more likely to continue to develop throughout their lifetimes as a consequence as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's something about the micro aspect to it, which seems because in some ways and all learning micro, you know, in the, in the sense that it's, um, you know, you, you could break it down into its smallest component parts that are happening in this moment that are yes. emerging and arising in this moment and our ability to mediate, you know, um, mediate the, the kind of arising experience, if that makes sense. Um, I, well, I believe that you're correct. You're definitely onto something there. We're not, we didn't invent this. Like we're just trying to do what the brain does more effectively. Yeah. You know, because if you take a course on algebra, the stuff that you're going to learn will be learned this way. <laughs> and the stuff that you didn't learn this way, you will forget. Right. But it reminds me of like a whole being experience, like an embodied learning experience. If I, the more micro I can go, the more um, my experience kind of um, becomes, um, uh, what's the word? Like it comes into focus, you know, it becomes more visceral yeah. and, and, and more so embedded. That's exactly right. You're, and we do call, that's what we call embodied learning. That's what we mean when we use that term. Um, that it is a whole person experience when you're learning. And there is now a new source of evidence for the power of this kind of learning in uh, an area of brain research called the connectome. Connectome research, have you seen that term? No, tell me what that means, yeah. So these people, I mean, this is amazing. If you actually, um, I've got articles where I've written about it and there's a really great picture in the articles. So look up connectome on our website and you'll find some pictures. Um, But uh, what they figured out how to do is image the neural network in the brain through the major connections that exist, which of which there are you know, millions. <laughs> and they, they can make pictures of it. And what they've discovered is that people whose knowledge is networked across regions of the brain more, so, you know, so the kinesthetic and the emotions and the, 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 the um, executive functions are all connected to one another more, that people whose brains are connected in this way are better at all kinds of things than people whose brains aren't connected in this way. So, you know, there's been a long-standing tradition that you're supposed to learn in school in a way that's completely objective and dispassionate, <laughs> and that there's some benefit to that. Like you're trying to turn people into computers through the educational system in a sense. And in the old days, we definitely needed human computers. They were critical. We don't need them anymore because we have actual computers and they do that part better. Um, but basically by teaching people in this way that turns them into computers, we're actually depriving them of having these brains that are connected in a way that actually makes us better at a whole lot of things. You know, so, so the memory, the knowledge that you have, it's tangled up with emotion and relationship. 
and that's tangled up with physical experience is more robust knowledge and it's more likely to be knowledge that you can use and build on. Um, I, like, I like to give the example here of, you know, we have other evidence for this uh, from our research. When we were building a physics assessment uh, several years ago for a research project that we were involved in, one of the things we noticed was that the students who reported less actual physical experience in the world simply couldn't understand physics concepts. Yeah. If you didn't know how, what it felt like to bounce a ball and how much energy it took of yours to get it to keep bouncing at the same height or what happens when you, you know, slam it down and let it go and you watch it bounce and you observe what's going on with it and you don't do that over and over and over and over again. The physics of energy is a concept that you will never really understand. And the I, physics of energy concepts a purely mathematical concept. Right. It, you know, it does, nobody knew that this was true. It, but it, it kind of makes me think of Goethe a little bit, and I'm just learning about him, but his idea of, I'm, and, and if there are any Goethe experts out there, they're going to probably cringe at my... And I'm poor, not a Goethe expert. But, but he, he had I'm this... I'm a Habermasian person. Um, his kind of idea of, um, you know, like immersing, like kind of phenomenological learning, you know, almost like a meditative inquiry with experience by going into experience that you could then begin to, um, you know, intuit some of these kind of um, theories um, that are embedded within the experience, but that the... Um, Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent, but that this, like what we've done is we've taken the theories and we've made those the, the primary experience, you know, the theory of like gravity or relativity or whatever has become the primary experience and we've disconnected from the primary experience itself. Now, anyway, that's a tangent, but, but what excites but that me? That disconnection yeah. from the experience actually impedes the learning, right. of the, of the, so, which totally makes sense from a Piagetian framework. And phenomenology has had a huge influence on the discipline that I'm part of. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's played a major role in the thinking of many of the original thinkers in the field. So, um, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's a case in which the earlier knowledge is a prerequisite for the later knowledge. You know, that the knowledge has to be built up and constructed through these various ways of knowing in order to be robust. So the people who get it, here and I have an example from my own experience. When I took my first mechanics course in grade eight, I got all the answers right on the first test and failed the test because I couldn't show my work because the, I felt the answers. Right, right. I knew the I was the answers were embodied <laughs> in my experience and I knew them because I had lived in the world <laughs> and, right. you know, and manipulated the world enough. So so. You know, I, I had later became quite good at it because I had that undergird of knowledge, but it was funny that I failed because I couldn't show my work. Well, <laughs> there's something else that when, when you talk about this, this theory of the integrated brain that excites me and that, um, that I feel like we, we're, we're, we're paying a price for this objectified kind of relationship we have to knowledge or the world. And, um, that there seems to be now um, in different places like this call back into a kind of um, whole being embodied immersive experience of the world, you know, so that 
um, yes, we're, um, you know, we're, we're still like utilizing analytical objective knowledge, but um, that there's something, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's like, I just get this thing around like the creativity and the, um, the, the kind of wisdom that emerges from this more immersive experience of the world that yes. can help us then respond to things like complexity, the VUCA world, you know, the, the crises we, we face. I think that there's, I mean, I think this is true. And that it's also another one of those pendulum swing things that we have to watch out for. Right, nice. You know, we, we saw, you know, the postmodernism movement come in and try to completely deconstruct objectivity and ended up with Dada. <laughs> uh, people may not know Dada, but Dada was a philosophical system in which people basically believed that, you know, nothing made sense and everything was, it was a very nihilistic way of thinking. Yeah. Um, so we get this entire movement in which not making sense is completely celebrated <laughs> right. or where, you know, whatever perspective you have is just as good as every other perspective, yeah. which is a complete, you know, denial of objectivism. And I am definitely not one of those people because I actually think that those are, that's that pendulum swing problem again. It's okay. Well, the objectivism is not completely perfectly working for us. So therefore we should swing to the other pendulum and just have nonsense. And <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like nothing we can all hang on to. I think what we need to do is figure out how to let, how to allow our full humanness to exist and still have an attempt at objectivity when it's important. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and recognize it though as an attempt and not right. pretend that we are computers because we will never be computers. You know, we can't have, we can't totally go there. But there's just so many things that we do better if we can integrate, you know, some degree of objectivity with our humanness. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm inspired. And I, as we move towards the end of our conversation, I want to ask you about how we might identify our own um, vehicles, you know, this virtuous learning cycle. Um, you know, a lot of people listening are coaches. They're probably really inspired by this idea uh, that these ideas that you're sharing, maybe they can, um, you know, ha help their clients identify these areas. But how, how might yeah. we, you know, identify and then apply it? You know, what would you advise for yeah. us? Well, I would advise people to learn how to do it properly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and not think they understand it before they do. Okay. And certainly not think they <laughs> how to do it until they do it. <laughs> um, so, um, I, you know, I mean, it's perfectly fine for people to take what they learn from a call like this and, and, and go and do some awareness stuff themselves, or, you know, right. look for instances. And, um, but I think that it's best to actually, you know, try to learn how to, to learn this properly, to get a deep understanding of it so that when you take it to your clients, you're really giving them the quality stuff. Right. Um, and we have a couple of ways of doing that here. We have the VIP course where you basically just learn to V-call <laughs> yourself. And then you can go and interact with other people and you know, share that skill. We have another course where we actually teach consultants and coaches how to, to take this out into the world. Beautiful. Um, so, I'm all for that. But, I'm all for yeah, quality, in, you know. But in yeah. the short term, I can give you some, you know, little things that you can do that'll, that'll kind of help build, build awareness and, um, and get the juices flowing. So let me just start by saying that there are 
what we found is, is about somewhere between five and 10% of people who get exposed to these ideas can jump on them and run. So I don't want to discourage you. If you're hearing this and you're saying, oh my God, this makes total sense. It totally fits with my experience. I get it. I'm going to start doing it now. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, send me a testimonial saying, oh my gosh, this changed my life. <laughs> I love those testimonials. <laughs> um, but for, for some people or at the other end of the spectrum, they hear about this and they get scared. <laughs> you know, it's just the opposite reaction. It's like, oh, no, 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 no way. Like, I'm not going back to that learning place because that's a place of too much pain. And for, for folks like that, they're probably not going to reach out at all. Most of us are somewhere in the middle where we've got maybe some kind of nascent memory of, or we've got something we do where we learn this way. So, and this is where I, this is where I want to start. Find something that you're learning this way or that you've consistently been able to keep learning this way. If you're an athlete, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, you're, probably learning this way in those areas and nobody's tried to mess with you and try to prevent you from doing it because the way that we coach, the way that we teach music, all of those things are, are done in ways that it's really well understood what the progression needs to be in order to build the skill. And so we, you know, we take people on the journey in a way that actually fits quite well with, with the natural learning cycle. Um, you know, the reason that athletes persist and keep striving to get better and better is because, you know, they've been in the zone. And, you know, we also call this zone flow, by the way. Chick sent me high, came up with the concept of flow, which is, you know, to some extent related to the body of research that, that my work is based on and certainly highly related to the new neuroscience. Um, so, so think of situations in, you know, in which learning has this kind of flow-like state where you feel compelled to kind of keep reaching for the next thing and watch yourself, watch what's going on. Just, because, just, just watch what's happening. Watch, watch what's happening to how you feel at each stage of the process. So, you know, I, I like to, to get people to do an exercise where they're thinking about, okay, so what does it feel like when I've got it? I won't use the word understanding here because sometimes it's not quite understanding, it's just getting it in the physical yeah. sense. What, what, what's it like when I've got it? What's it like? What, how do I feel when I've almost got it? <laughs> and how do I feel when I'm not getting it at all? You know, or where it feels like it's just too hard. Um, and what, get familiar with the sensations. And then once you've identified the sensations, and I like to, to take the ones that have to do with the almost got it, like, what in these contexts where you're experiencing flow, what is almost got it feel like? And then learn to identify situations in other parts of your life where you get that almost got it set of feelings. That's your Goldilocks zone. Mm. And the more you can train your brain to recognize that zone and leverage it, you know, so once you know what it is, then you say, okay, can I make a little recall experience around this? Can I, make part of this process conscious almost got it being a kind of more fertile learning zone than got it because when you've got it is that when, when you, when you, you know, got it, it got it like not in flow it's learning to walk the moment they can stand without support right they're on yeah. to the next thing 
because we kind of get bored when we end. And so imagine, remember sitting in a classroom when you basically had 80% of the material already and the teacher was repeating stuff for the third time and your brain just goes somewhere else, right? right? Because there's no more, your brain's not interested anymore. So a state of understanding can be a nice state. It can feel kind of nice, you know, for a minute. Like, oh, got it. That feels good. Woo-hoo. And immediately it turns to, okay, what's next? Um, so, but the almost understanding is the most fertile ground for most people because many people have experiences they can connect positive feelings around almost understanding too. Um, not necessarily school experiences because in school, almost understanding is not rewarded. <laughs> <laughs> but in athletics and music and art, it is actually, you know, it's, it's, it's rewarded because it's a step on a journey. Right. So, yeah. and that's seen as an important process, part of the process. Uh, so, so find those places where you've almost got it and identify what those emotions are and then go and look for it in your regular life and find it where you can find it. And when you find it, start deliberately consciously be calling in that space. So Just then, to get the scent, you start to kind of create the habit. Yeah. So in that moment, got it. Then you would set a goal yeah, around. Okay, I want to get it. <laughs> yeah, I want to get it. Um, okay, so what do I? What do I have already that I need to know to get it? What do I need to know? What do I? It's missing. Yeah. And sometimes that could just be. I'm going to go talk to John and see how he thinks about this. You know, I'm just going to ask John, or I'm just going to. I wonder if people have written about this already. I'm going to go see what the the um, bullet points are and you know in the reviews of these books about this um so it could be as simple as that and then okay now i'm going to try again so you can see how that information gathering piece that expertise gathering piece information gathering piece supports you in being able to execute better on the next round right. that's why you want to have it there every time I mean, I, i'm just thinking of my own coaching practice that's this is for me where i feel like i'm playing in this zone and um, you know, it makes me think of like self-actualization, you know, like this is actually a profound endeavor we're talking about, you know, like people like land, you know, consciously landing in this zone and, and then V calling round and round. It's like, there's something deeply creative and evolutionary about that. Yeah. It is. And, and, and it's deeply satisfying to be there. It just, right. you know, by, by, birthright by the way that our brains were organized you know make us feel deeply satisfied when we're there yeah you're, that's interesting because you know self-actualization is sort of you know often pursued in the same way that being at a higher level is pursued right like i'm going for it directly like i i want to be that guy and i'm going to try to get there directly i'm going to listen to every word he says and you know like <laughs> mimic every word he says but the, but in the you know, I think self-actualization is really about this kind of ongoing engagement with the world, this conscious ongoing engagement exactly. with the world and with our own fallibilities in the process, but not seeing them in the kind of personal psychodynamic way necessarily, but in the ubiquitous I'm a human being way Right. that allows us to have constant forgiveness of ourselves for, for those fallibilities. And, and well, you know, <laughs> yeah, but... And because we often, we might see that self-actualization from a place of deficiency. That's the thing I have. It's like, oh, I'm not right here. But when I get to that place there, then I'll be okay because I'll be self-actualized. And it creates a kind of weird dynamic, you know. And what if we live from a place of self-actualization here right now? 
through, you know, through uh, this, this kind of, uh, you know, through V calling around what's most meaningful to us. By doing this thing that our brain just loves to do as right. well. So we get to, so we get to actually have greater satisfaction. Um, you know, I'd use, I'd say happiness, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not the happiness that makes you want to jump up and down most of the time, but it's a kind of satisfaction that you get to carry with you all the time. Well, meaning. For yeah. Me, I think one of the reasons that we have so much depression in our culture is because we're all disconnected from this fundamental thing that our brain is desperate for, right. <laughs> that our brain is designed to have. And, and we go searching for it in places that are destructive rather than being able to find it in a place where it was intended to function. Mm. I, I think that's a great place to begin to end our, con our conversation today. Um, you know, I'm just noticing how I feel in this moment, you know, maybe I've got that kind of dopamine opioid thing going on, but I feel very alive and curious and, and grateful and like I'm in the right place, you know, and perhaps like I've been V calling with you, you know, in our conversation today. Um, so collaborative learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I'm, I'm very grateful about our conversation today because it feels very hopeful to me. You know, like this feels, it, there's, a, there's a kind of feeling of, of um, generativity and, and possibility that I have right now. Like this is a very hopeful uh, idea that we've been talking about today. So, so thank you. And I want to invite you to say where we can learn more about your work as well. Well, first, um, I just want to make sure that people know about our nonprofit mission. Is that okay? Yeah, of course, please. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I really love the way that, that you've responded. It's, it's why I'm doing this. You know, it's, that's why I'm doing this. I want everybody, no matter who they are or where they come from or what their circumstances are, to have the opportunity to keep their dopamine opioid cycle where it belongs and to really have an opportunity to fully develop themselves as human beings. And so I created this nonprofit organization to conduct the research and create tools that we can give away to individual teachers in the ch childhood and adolescence range. Um, so, that, so that no matter where you are, where you're teaching, um, if you speak English, <laughs> you, can, um, you can make use of those tools to improve the, the lives of your students. All of the work that we do outside of K-12 and other nonprofit institutions um, is work that feeds the nonprofit mission. So all of the profits from everything that we do feeds that nonprofit mission. So that's the, the way that we're structured. So mm. I, I always want to tell people about that so that you can really feel good about working with our stuff. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, where to find things? Uh, there is a, the best place to go is to our website because the website has tons of information on it by itself, but also because there's this little, you know, there's this little Google search engine at the top of the page when you first land there. And anything that you've heard about that you, that, you know, that we do or that you're interested in that we do, if you search it there, you're going to find all of, the, all of our sources of it. So you'll find everything that's, that's written on my Medium blog on that topic, and you'll find everything that's in our about pages about that topic. Um, and all of the, the um, all of our research publications and research evidence as we 
you know, gather it. Uh, we present on the website itself so that you can go and actually get access to the original articles and, and, and findings from all of the research. There's a ton of stuff there. It's kind of, you know, people just get lost when they go there. But if you have those kinds of questions, we actually mm. make it all public and available to you. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can always contact us and, you know, we're, we're happy to, to ask any questions that people have at any time. There's a contact link and we usually get back to people within 24 hours. So. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I can really recommend people check out both your Medium posts and, and some of the resources on your website as well. There's really some rich information there. One of our missions as a nonprofit organization is, is to disseminate what we learn. And so the Medium post is not just an opinion play, blog. It's, it's actually a place where we report on a lot of our latest findings and the latest things we've learned. Uh, so, you know, if you're... I, you can think of the Medium blog as my book. Right. <laughs> it's where I'm putting all the juicy stuff that people can make use of. So. Yeah, well, Theo, thanks very much. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It was great. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.